Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. As Nick was sharing about the team in Zambia being at Victoria Falls, uh, God took me back to a time when I was at Victoria Falls. And if you've been there, think of that, or perhaps some other majestic waterfall, Niagara Falls, or somewhere else that you've been in your life. And I remember sitting across from the falls watching it, and just the, the majesty and the power of that water just struck me. And uh, I felt God say that even today, with all of the technology that we have, all of the building materials that we have, we cannot dam up those size rivers. If we wanted to do it the way they would do it, is they would actually have to divert the river elsewhere first, then build the dam wall, and then, in a sense, undivert the river. Because we don't have the power to, to dam up that force of water. And I felt God challenge me and say, Lee, is there any area in your life that you've allowed to just begin to be diverted? Because the Bible talks about us as believers having streams of living water. And I felt God say, Lee, let's not allow any area of our life to begin to be diverted. And I love the picture that Nick shared this morning of the train plowing through the snow. And I remember as a young boy seeing video of that and just the snow being displaced as this massive locomotive just came through. And I felt something of the roar of heaven over that picture this morning as that train just plows through that snow that God would arise and his enemies would be scattered. And so my prayer this morning is that we as a people would begin to, in a sense, undivert any rivers in our lives that we've allowed to be diverted. And as we do that, that God would arise and his enemies would be scattered. So this morning, I would like to begin by having a look at the Lord's Prayer, uh, and specifically the first half of the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to put it up on the screen and uh, take it from there. It comes from Matthew chapter 6, and uh, to give you some context to the scripture, it is found pretty much slap bang in the middle of a sermon that Jesus preached, which becomes known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest single recorded sermon that we have of Jesus while he was on earth. And this is pretty much right bang in the middle of it. And before he gets into this piece, he's, he's talking to his disciples and he says, well, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't, well, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who says one thing and then does another. Right? And Jesus is saying, don't do that. So when we sing songs, Nick's just spoken about us singing our theology of Jesus have it all. Like there's some weight in that song because Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrites, Lee. Don't say one thing and then not follow through on that. And then Jesus says, well, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the Lord's Prayer. Most of us probably know that off by heart. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, why does Jesus begin with our Father in heaven? It would have still made sense if Jesus had just said, Our Father. But he adds in the in heaven piece. 
And Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Every single word is God-breathed. And so there's a reason why Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, not just our Father, hallowed be your name. And it, it points us to the position of the Father. That's what the in heaven peace is doing. It's pointing us to the fact that the Father is in heaven. And so when we pray, we're praying to the Father in heaven. So when God formed creation from the book of Genesis, it says God spoke and said, let there be lights, and there was lights. This is the Father in heaven. Now, I don't know, you can go and Google however many millions or billions of Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs are going off every second on the sun to produce enough light and energy for our world to survive. And God spoke that into being. God says, and he speaks, creation, he speaks, let there be plants and seed-bearing fruit and plants, and suddenly the world is full of plants and fruit and vegetables. And I went to look this up. There are over 12,000 varieties of grass in this world. And I was like, God, why? Why? Like, who's... Is it possible for one person to know all the names of just the grass? It's probably the most base plant we can get. And I felt it was just something of God's creative nature and just his creative juices just flowing out. Surely he could have created one type of grass that would have lived in all climates, all ecosystems, all soil types. But something of the creative juices of our God. Something of the majesty. In fact, the only part of creation that God doesn't speak into being is us as humans. And it says he gathered up the dust and he breathed the breath of life into us. This is the Father in heaven. So when Jesus say, pray like this, our Father in heaven, this is the Father that we get to pray to. This is not some far off, distant, remote, removed God. This is the author of life. This is the Alpha and Omega, as Scripture calls him. That means the beginning of time and the end of time, he sits outside of that. Time begins and ends in him, and he is omnipresent and omnipotent. This is the Father in heaven who Jesus is saying we pray to. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we say our Father in heaven is the most important thing about us. And I wonder what does enter our minds when we hear our Father in heaven. I grew up in a society that would still have called themselves Christian, but in a very religious sense. And I use the word religious and not in a positive way there. Where I could recite the Lord's Prayer off by heart, but I'd never considered what, who is our Father in heaven? What does it mean when I pray, our Father in heaven? If I'm honest, what probably entered my mind was a picture of an old school principal, of an old man with a frown on his face, 
always trying to catch me out for doing something wrong. That was kind of the mental image I had of my Father in heaven. Perhaps some of us this morning, the mental image, what enters our minds when we think about our Father in heaven is heavily influenced by, by our earthly fathers. And perhaps some of our earthly fathers had more shortcomings than they ought to have. Or does the mental image of this creative God, this majestic God, this all-powerful God, this loving, kind, forgiving, compassionate, gracious, awe-inspiring, majestic Father in heaven enter our minds when we say our Father in heaven. Picture for a moment a scientist looking down a microscope at an ant. And it would be possible to say that after some time, the scientist could claim to know everything there is to know about the ant. Now picture for a moment that same ant looking back up the microscope at the scientist. I would suggest it would not be possible after any period of time for the ant to claim that it knows everything about the scientist. He may know everything about the scientist's eye that he would see back through the magnifying glass or the microscope, but he wouldn't know everything. And our Father in heaven is kind of a bit like that. The more we see of God, the more majestic our, our mind's eyes of God, our spirit reveals, the more we begin to realize there's so much more to this Father in heaven. And I feel the weight of heaven this morning that sometimes we allow that picture to be dimmed down. We just allow some water to be diverted from that stream. And this morning, God would challenge us and say, let's not reduce who God is. Because when we begin to just allow some water to be diverted... It impacts. Maybe we wouldn't admit that it impacts. Maybe it wouldn't even change what we say, but it may change what we think. Maybe we begin to think that certain things are easier for God and therefore certain things are more difficult for God to do. Well, I, I can pray this, but I won't pray that because you know, I, I don't think God would do that for me. Maybe I begin to think it's easier for God to heal someone of the flu than it is for Him to raise the dead. Maybe I begin to think it's easier for God to heal someone of a migraine or a backache than it is for Him to heal someone of cancer. Maybe I begin to think it's easier for God to save other people's friends and family, but not my own. Maybe I begin to think, well, it's easier for God to give me a revelation from His Scripture than it is for Him to set me free from my bondage or my depression. See, when we begin to be think of God as this is easier for Him and this is more difficult for Him, we've just allowed some water to be diverted from that stream of living water that God wants to bring into our life. The next line of that verse says, Hallowed be your name. To make hallowed means to make holy, sacred, to sanctify and to consecrate. And so when Jesus says, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, 
it means that the thoughts that we think need to make sacred, make holy, and to consecrate our Father in heaven. The words that we speak, the words that we sing, need to make holy, sacred, and consecrate the name of our Father in heaven. The actions that we live, the attitudes of our hearts, that's a difficult one. I had a friend who said this to me. He said, Lee, I wish I could rip my heart out of my chest and just beat it because sometimes my heart is so wicked. And to be honest, that's true. And the thought of me being able to think, act, speak, have attitudes that always make hallowed the name of our Father in heaven, it terrifies me because I know what goes on in my heart and in my head and in my actions and and I know that for me, that is impossible outside of Jesus. The next line says, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the question I have this morning is, well, what does life look like when the Father in heaven's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven? What does it look like when the Father in heaven's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like? We've had a word over this church about an open heaven. And there's really a weight and an authority and a timing on that word for Revolution Church in this season. Of an open heaven. And I believe that ties in with this thing of God's kingdom coming, God's will being done. That speaks of an open heaven. And if we wanted to know what an open heaven looks like, I think the best thing to do is look at what it was like around Jesus when he walked on earth. Where he walked, I saw people, I read about people being saved. I read, read about people being forgiven, people being set free, people being healed. I read about men being drawn to the Father as, as he is lifted up. Perhaps that's what... God's kingdom coming, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven is just a taste of. What else is interesting about this scripture for me is that I've split it left and right there because it's kind of half and half. But actually the first half has got very little to do with any of my needs or my wants. The first half is about our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, your will. Very little about me. The second half gets into daily bread and debts and debtors. Forgiveness. The first half is about our Father in heaven. And so to me, it speaks about relationship. It speaks about, I've got to have a close relationship with the Father so that His name would be hallowed, so that his kingdom would come. His will will be done on earth. And religion, in a bad sense of the word, would switch that around and say, my prayer life should first and foremost be about my needs, my wants, my desires, my daily bread, so to speak. Where actually, our prayer lives should be first and foremost relationship. And out of that relationship flow the daily bread and the debts and the debtors and but it's about relationship with the Father.
Another well-known verse of prayer or on prayer is this one from James 5, verse 16. It's often quoted and it says, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And we often quote it as Christians. Most of us probably know that verse off by heart. Because we all want our prayers to be powerful and effective. The key there is it's the prayer of a righteous person. So what is a righteous person? Righteous means right standing with God. In other words, I can stand before the Father right. In other words, my relationship, there it is again, my relationship with the Father is right. And out of that avails much powerful and effective. Jesus tells a story where some people came to him and they said, Jesus, we've done all these things. And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. Isn't that terrifying? Jesus is focused on the, the righteous, the relationship aspect. I want to know you, not on what we can do. The second point I want to make is a comparison between two men who had some, faced some storms or some challenges in their lives. And I'm not going to read the, the, all the scriptures for time's sake. I'll paraphrase them. But I will put them up on the screen, um, even if I just paraphrase them. So the first man who faced a storm was Jonah. And he's a well-known character in the Old Testament. And uh, to paraphrase the story, uh, God says to Jonah, Hey, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to a town or city, the great city actually of Nineveh, and preach. And Jonah is terrified. Jonah is terrified. And so Jonah goes to a coastal city called Joppa, and he buys a ticket on a boat to go to Tarshish. If you go and look on a map, the city of Nineveh and the city of Joppa, Tarshish is the exact opposite way. Like He wasn't like narrowly going to miss he was like, Jesus wants me that way. Hey, I'm going this way. And so Jonah gets on this boat. And in fact, he actually tells the crew on the boat, hey guys, I'm running away from what God has called me to do. And the storm strikes and the sailors are really scared that the boat is going to sink. And this is long before the days of coast guards and helicopters. And so the boat sinks. It's game over for those guys. And so they begin to throw their luggage overboard. Now, I would suggest if you're going on a sailing trip, the luggage is your valuable possessions that you need for whenever you get to wherever you're going. And the sailors are so scared that they're going to sink that even those valuables begin to be thrown overboard. And Jonah is so determined to run away from God that he is asleep in the boat. And eventually, some of the sail crew come down and wake him, and they're kind of like, Jonah, what's wrong with you, man? We're all about to sink and die, and you're fast asleep. And so they eventually decide that this is, they realize this is Jonah's fault. And Jonah says something. He says, I serve the God who made the wind and the waves and the storm. He's running away from God, but he's prepared to recognize that this storm was brought on by God. And so much of this story terrifies me. It terrifies me because when I choose to walk away from what God's called me to, other people around me may face big storms. They may have to throw some of their luggage overboard in an attempt to keep their ship afloat just because I'm on their ship when I should be on a ship to Nineveh. 
And so the sailors say to Jonah, look, okay, this is your fault, man. You serve this God. We're terrified. What do we do? How do we fix this? Tell us. This is you, you created this. You tell us how to fix it. So Jonah says something really interesting. He says, well, throw me overboard. And this is, this is a wonderful reflection on these sailors. They're like, no, man. You go overboard, you're dead. We, we don't want to kill you. We just want to get to Tarshish safely. And so they opt not to, to throw Jonah overboard. It says they actually went back and rowed extra hard against the storm to get out. And eventually they realized that their efforts were futile. They came back and said, look, Jonah, if we don't throw you overboard now, we're all going to die. And so they throw Jonah overboard. And uh, we know the story. He's swallowed by a great fish. Some people say a whale, whatever. And he spends three days in the belly of a whale. Now, I never have and I never want to spend three days inside the belly of a great fish. But it can't be pleasant. It cannot be. Imagine the sound and the darkness and the stomach acid and I don't know whatever else is going on. The smells. And it just shows you how stubborn Jonah was. He knew. God had caught him to Nineveh, yet he bought a ticket to Tarshish. God brought a storm, nearly sank the ship. A whole bunch of other people nearly died. Eventually gets thrown overboard. And he still spends three days before he comes to God and surrenders and goes, Okay, God. Okay, God, I'm sorry. There's something in our hearts as humans that makes us stubborn. We're like, God. I don't know where exactly that began for Jonah. We sang a song this morning that says, I don't have to be afraid. I want to suggest that Jonah was afraid. Somewhere along the line, he'd allowed some water to be diverted from the streams of living water that God wanted to bring through him. Lord, let us not be like Jonah. That at some stage in our life, have allowed water to be diverted, have bought a ticket on the wrong boat, heading in the wrong direction. Other people around us may face storms because of our decisions. And yet, God in His grace didn't allow Jonah to drown, didn't allow Jonah to be shipwrecked. He saved him and eventually that great fish literally vomited him up on the shore, and Jonah went to Nineveh and preached, just as God had asked. Lord, if there are any of us, like Jonah this morning, running away in any area of our lives, let us hear you this morning. Let us hear you this morning. The second person I want to talk about who was on a boat and faced a storm was Peter. It's another well-known story from Scripture. And again, I won't read it all for, for time's sake. But Peter's on this boat. And in actual fact, Scripture says, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And he sent them on their sailing way. He wasn't in the boat, Jesus. So the disciples go out. And uh, while there was some waves and some wind, there must have been some type of a storm, Scripture doesn't seem to imply that the storm was anywhere near the scale to what Jonah's storm was. Their boat wasn't about to sink. In fact, the main emphasis, as I read it in Scripture, was that they were a long way from shore. The Bible says that a couple times. And so 
actually, the safest thing for Peter to do would be to stay in the boat. And uh, we know they're out there in the third watch. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They're out there and they see someone in the distance walking on the water. Some disciples think it's a ghost. So they can see that there's someone there, but the person is not close enough for them to recognize that it's Jesus. And so Jesus calls out and he says, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter's response is amazing. He says, Lord, if it's you, call me and I'll come to you. So Jesus says, come. And we know the story. Peter gets out the boat. And we also know the story. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, begins to sink. And in his grace, Jesus responds to Peter's cry of, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and pulls him up. Maybe there's some of us here this morning who've grown comfortable in our boat. That our boat is the safest place we can be. We feel like we're a long way from shore. And maybe this morning Jesus is calling us to step out of that boat and begin to walk towards him again. And you're like, Lee, you don't know what you're asking me. You're right, I don't. But I know that if Jesus is asking you to walk towards him, that he will walk towards you. That snow train that Nick spoke about that just blows all that snow out the way as it just plows through, unstoppable. That might, that authority of heaven. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered as we get out of that boat. Maybe for some of us, getting out of that boat means sharing a word with someone. Maybe God's given you a word for someone else. Don't run to Tarshish. Get out of the boat. Walk towards Jesus, because our Father in heaven is asking us. The weight of heaven. Maybe God's asking some of us to open our homes to fellowship. Maybe God's asking you to stir up a gift that you've let lie dormant and use it again. Maybe God's challenging you to genuinely commit in the fall to a connect group again and allow yourself to, to be knitted in. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, at times it's inconvenient. Yes, at times we're tired. But if that is what God is asking of us, I want to be getting out the boat and not staying in my comfy place just because I'm a long way from shore. Maybe Jesus is asking you to pray for a family member or a colleague at work who's going through a tough time or is ill. Let's be those who have quick obedience. Over the last two weeks, Jeb preached about the word all. One was, let's give God our all, and the other one was, what does it mean when God gives us his all? And we sing it this morning. We said, we sang, Jesus, have it all. What does that mean? Like, Do we just sing those words, or do we actually think about the meaning and the theology of what we're singing? Because going back to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus began, he said, don't be like the hypocrites who say one thing, but don't do it. Do we just sing those words because it's nice music and everyone else is singing and we get caught up in the moment? Or do we actually, like Jeb was imploring us, Jesus, have it all. 
Nick this morning spoke about Jesus. Have our time. Have our money. Have our houses. Have our health. Have, Jesus, have it all. That not one area of that river may be diverted. So we're going to go into one last song, which is called Every Faber. And we've sang it before. I'm sure we know the words. But it literally speaks about that. Every fiber of our being. And I want to challenge you in this song. If there is some area in your life where you feel you've allowed the waters of God, that stream, to be diverted. To go, God, when I sing every fiber, I want to give you that area of my life as well. 99% is not enough. Lord, I want to give you everything within me. That area of my life. Perhaps for some people here this morning, it might be the first time that you're giving anything to the Lord. And you want to give your life to the Lord. We're going to have people down here to pray. If you want to do business with God at your seat, if you want to come down and have someone pray through stuff with you, that's up to you. If you want to ask the person who invited you or your connect group leader to pray through something with you, I'm going to leave that to you. But my challenge to you this morning is, when we say Jesus have it all, we mean our Father in heaven, we give you everything. Amen.